uh, I would ask you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're just going to be in about four or five little bitty verses here, but these verses are packed. Uh, 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you go past the Gospels, you've got Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 2, verses uh, 12 to 17. Uh, one quick note for you guys who are members of Citadel Square. We're going to have our um, kind of large-scale member meeting here for Citadel Square members this evening, this afternoon, actually starting at 4 o'clock and then we'll go into eating. It's a pretty significant one for us in the life of our church, so we're asking you to make that a priority and join us at four for that. That's that announcement out of the way. All right, let's talk about God's word here. Uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians begins a major change in Paul's argumentation. From about the middle of here, chapter 2, into 3, and all the way through 7, Paul is going to show us something incredibly important about ministry. Uh, Paul has, has began this book talking about what it's like to be a minister of Jesus Christ. And if you remember that story or that where we are up to this point, Paul has not had a triumphant, joyful uh, time of following Christ. He's used words like anguish and affliction and despairing of life itself. He's talked about writing painful letters filled with anguish and tears uh, as he ministers now to this group of people called the Corinthian church. And we looked at last week as we got to the end there of uh, our time that we, we looked at the, the need for this church to police itself. Paul and this some individual who we don't know whose name it is had a difficult verbal confrontation, altercation that caused Paul to retreat and write a painful letter telling the church that you've got to handle this individual in your church because what is at stake is the gospel message. So that church was admonished and encouraged to discipline them and we find out later that they obeyed Paul's commands, Paul's directives to discipline this individual and they actually went too far. So that they, Paul had to say, all right, lay off the gas a little bit. We need to give him room if he's repented to bring him back into fellowship into the life of the church. So this church has responded well to Paul's writings. But what Paul's going to do here as he picks up this story is continue with some more of his inner subjective experience as an apostle. He did a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail in talking about how the church needs to deal with sin in the camp, how the church needs to disciple and, I'm sorry, to discipline those members who are seeking to draw them away from the faithful gospel message. But now we're going to return to Paul's biography, and he's going to share again where he is in his mind and in his heart as he goes about the ministry and the mission of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. So if you'd look with me in, in chapter 2, just look up to verse uh, 4 with me. Because between 4 and about 12 is a little bit of a side, a side conversation. 4, he says this, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I had for you. Remember that? That Paul is emotionally invested in these people. Now, an undercurrent in what Paul has been talking about up to this point is whether or not Paul's ministry, uh, in effect, is not so much credible because Paul's credibility in the eyes of the Corinthian church is being challenged for sure, 
especially by these false apostles. But the ground of Paul's ministry really is the question of where does his authority come from? And that's an important question for us in 2022 is that what is a valid ministry? What is a ministry that God looks at and says that is a ministry? That is what I'm pleased with. Is it the case that every single individual who is out there preaching, out there teaching with a following or followers or reputation or influence necessarily has God's authority behind him? What do you think? Because everybody agrees, does he necessarily have authority? Is influence and authority the same? And what Paul is going to do from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 all the way into 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is talk about what a faithful ministry looks like and therefore why he is a faithful apostle. You with me so far? So this is an essential text for understanding the uh, criteria for whether or not God looks at a Christian church, God looks at a missionary, God looks at a preacher and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you, as a Christian, want to hear at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant? I know that's, I do. I don't know where you are on that, but Paul begins to show us something here that will carry us, as I said, in the future chapters. We're just going to deal with five verses today, but it's the beginning, the anchor of his authority to do what God has called him to do. All right? So let's pray. And then we'll jump in here and see what God has to say to us. Father in heaven, for these few minutes, we pray that you would give light to our eyes. That as we look into your word, we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, that you would adjust us where we need to be adjusted. That we would repent where we need to repent. That you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted. And that we would model a humble repentance in response to your word. Father, for all that I'm about to say here this morning, if it's of the Spirit, we pray that it takes root in the lives of the people in this room, in my own heart as well, if it's of the flesh, that you would remove it and cause it to be forgotten. But we pray, Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word and as we gather and that you would produce in us fruit that remains, that we would look at Paul's life, look at this ministry, and desire with great godly ambition to be faithful to what you have called us to in the time that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul in 2.4 said affliction, anguish, tears. Now look with me at 2.12, and Paul comes back to this inner dialogue, his, his emotional state as he's dealing with the Corinthian church. 2.12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul's ministry ambition has always been Christ-focused. Would you agree? You can't be a missionary for Jesus and not have an ambition that's driving you in your heart to preach and to teach about Jesus. When Paul gets commissioned by Christ, it's as if Paul gives God, gives Jesus a blank check. Remember checks? Anybody use checks anymore? It's... If, it's if he hands him his Venmo account and says, God, whatever, you just hit the button, Jesus. You, tell, you with me? Maybe that helps. Paul says, my whole life 
is yours. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I will go and I will preach about Jesus Christ to whoever you want me to. Now, Paul, like we said, had left Corinth because of this confrontation. And while he's gone, what he does is he writes this confrontational letter where he lays out the issues that are in the church with this individual that he had the altercation with. And he puts it in Titus's hands. And Titus now goes back to Corinth to take Paul's letter of confrontation to this individual in the life of the church, and Paul leaves. And Paul lands in a city or in a port on the western coast of Turkey called Troas. I've got an image for it for you of it here. If you look at uh, that on your left is where Corinth is, right in that little isthmus there. And where he is now, as he arrives in Troas and he comes across the Aegean Sea, he lands and he's waiting for Titus. And he tells Titus, "I'm going to meet you in Troas." Now, the fastest way for you to get from Corinth to Troas is by boat. You with me? It's probable that Titus doesn't go by boat because of weather patterns and stuff like that. So here's Paul with the last boat of the season because winter is coming. He looks for every single individual that gets off this boat waiting and longing to hear what is the response of the Corinthian church to this severe letter. And he is standing there in Troas waiting for this report. And if we had cell phones, this would be not so anxious for Paul. Because Titus would just go, hey, it was good. They did great. It's all right. But Paul doesn't have that. They needed apple. But they didn't have apple or Android. Take your pick, whatever it is. So Paul's sitting in Troas and he's waiting for this news and the last boat comes in and Titus isn't on the boat and now as he's in Troas and he has an opportunity now to preach the gospel of Christ because that's what Paul did. Paul has no significant preaching ministry in Troas and this text tells you why. He'll return later in the book of Acts to Troas and he'll just teach to a house church where a guy gets so tired of his teaching he falls out the window which is you can read that yourself. Paul raises him from the dead don't worry about it. It's in Acts you can read it happens in Troas. A guy named Eutychus. So here's Paul and Troas waiting for this, and he's here to preach the gospel, and he begins to do it, but look at the end, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. Now, Paul, when he talks about open doors in Colossians and in uh, the end of 1 Corinthians, he writes about even telling the church, please pray for an open door. An open door is a God-ordained opportunity. It's a chance where the gospel takes root, It's kind of like those moments in our lives where people go, I'm not sure how to be saved. How do I get rid of the guilt of sin? And you go, this is, I'm being a discerning evangelist. You go, this might be an opportunity for me to talk about the individual who can take away the sin and guilt uh, and present them pure and spotless before Christ. That's where Paul is. Paul's got significant opportunity and open door in Troas. Now look at verse 13 though. Caught between opportunity is Paul's heart on the other side. Verse 13, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. Paul is caught between two things, the anxiety over the Corinthian church and the opportunity that is afforded him in Troas. 
And he's so twisted up in his heart about how this is going to go in the Corinthian church that Paul takes leave of Troas and heads to Macedonia, the next place that he's going to meet Titus. Now, consider how Paul is feeling. Verse 4 in chapter 2, anguish, affliction, many tears. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 13, my spirit was not at rest. Let me show you this again. Paul gives you one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to show you again how he's feeling before Titus got there. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul takes leave of Troas and then he goes to Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. What wasn't resting in verse 13? His spirit is not at rest. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5, my body is not at rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So you can get a picture. Have you ever been significantly overwhelmed? Have you ever been at the end of yourself? Because that's where Paul has been for two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians. He's despaired of life itself. There's fear outside and fear inside. I'm filled with anguish, filled with tears, and in the midst of this significant gospel opportunity, Paul leaves. Doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, this is the guy who wrote, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul, why didn't you, I don't know, suck it up? Why didn't you just get over it? Paul, you got no control over how they respond. You wrote the letter and you sent it. You should just be at peace with that. And one of the reasons I think this is here is for us to see that Paul is profoundly human. He lives in this irreconcilable tension that we all feel between significant spiritual opportunity and significant spiritual worry. Do you have people like that? Do you have people in your life right now where you are nervous about their heart and their soul? And you, on the other hand, may have people that you are seeing great opportunity with. So the question as we look at this is, as we see Paul in the middle, who's being just a human, he feels the pressure and the tension between opportunity and anxiety, between the people he loves and he cares for and is worried about their spiritual well-being and the people that still need the gospel and are going to hell. You've got both of those realities that show us that spiritual ministry, gospel-centered ministry, is not without a significant emotional cost. You may even feel this. You go, how in the world can we live in America and gather together and sing songs when so many people in so many parts of the world are dying and going to hell? What are we doing? And you may be on the other side and go, I have significant opportunity and relationships with people in my life right now that I'm praying for, that I'm worried about, and I'm not sure whether or not they're going to make it. And what Paul shows us is that is totally common and normal. Welcome to Christian ministry. 
The interior of your heart is going to be like Paul's when you actually, and this is the problem. A lot of times we think ministry is only done out of strength. And Paul demonstrates for us consistently in 2 Corinthians that he is at the end of his rope. He is relying on God who raises the what? The dead. If you are going to make an impact with your Christian life, be prepared for significant emotional and spiritual weight. Amen? It is part of the curriculum. So here's Paul with his spirit not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So if you were to think about Paul's inner spiritual life right now, you would say Paul is not in a healthy place, right? Paul is emotionally burdened. He's emotionally overwhelmed. He's at the end of himself. But 2 Corinthians 2, this passage, shows us how Paul is going to lead his heart. It's going to show us that Paul is going to take theology and put it underneath his emotions. Would you agree that how you feel about how God is leading doesn't necessarily mean that God is not leading, right? We all know that. You ever have one of those mornings you wake up and you go, everything's a mess. I'm not sure if he's even alive. I don't know if we're, what are we doing in this situation? What is God doing? I can't see what God is doing or where he's leading or how he's in control or how he, you know, is doing whatever it is he's doing up there. God, I am a mess. And that's right where Paul is. Paul doesn't know how the Corinthians are going to receive the letter. He doesn't know whether or not Titus is going to meet him. He's got a significant ministry opportunity, but he's not taking them. He's at the end of himself. He's in this spot where his heart is all twisted up. And then verse 14 hits. And verse 14 is the contrast that begins to turn Paul's heart. It's the contrast where Paul is about to take what he knows about God and connect it to his inner emotional life. Because everything up to this point for Paul, and I think we we need to know this, in Paul's life, doesn't this stuff feel mundane? Paul took a boat ride, landed, didn't miss his friend, and he's at the end of himself. You know, don't you feel like Paul's a little bit like Elijah? Elijah has the, you know, kills all the prophets of Baal and he's on the run. The rainstorm runs from uh, Jezebel and Ahab and he gets to the end of himself and he needs a nap and a sandwich. And God goes, just take a break. And Elijah starts, he's, everything's a catastrophe. I'm the only one. I was out there killing them. You shouldn't have seen me. I took on 450. They were all, I got them. They're dead. That's me. I'm only me. God, I'm alone. I'm by myself. That's it. And God goes, I still have reserved for myself 7,000 of them bowed the knee to Baal. You need a sandwich and a nap, you'll be all right. Get up and let's go. God's a great counselor. He's a great counselor. But I want to show you how do we lead. Let's say that you're in here this morning and you've got significant spiritual weight in your life. You're worried about people who don't know Christ. You're worried about people who might be deceived into walking away from the gospel message. What in the world are we going to do to be able to, to solidify the foundations of our hearts? How do we do that? 
And Paul does it right here for us. So he, he models something for the Corinthians. He shows them the significant emotional and spiritual weight that he is under, and then he disciples them in what you do in that situation. Verse 13, I'm sorry, 14. But thanks be to God. One of the disciplines that I have found is so hard to practice in my own life is the discipline of giving thanks. I try to teach my kids this. We are wired. I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it's my family. Maybe your family is always exploding with thanksgiving. Maybe it's just mine. Maybe it's just my heart. Maybe it's my sin patterns showing up in my kids. But I have such a good eye for pointing out the things that are wrong. You know what the problem is? The boats, the weather. Titus didn't come. He probably didn't deliver the letter. The Corinthians are hard-hearted. They don't believe in God. This is over. My ministry is done. This isn't going to work. This person isn't going to listen. There's no spiritual opportunity here. I've been doing this and praying for them, and I don't know what's going on. And I don't care about the other opportunities. I can't even take them because my heart is so twisted up over what's happening with this person. And Paul ejects from his emotional conversation and he disciplines himself to say, thanks be to God. This is your first weapon against the emotional chaos that will characterize your inner spiritual life when you take gospel ministry and preaching the gospel to yourself and others seriously. You must come back to the foundational reality of God's grace because of who he is. Thanks be to God. Now, what has Paul said up to this point already in the book? Despite chapter one, where he said he had a ministry that looked impossible, despite writing heart-wrenching letters filled with anguish to people that he spiritually worried about, despite the disappointment and discouragement that Titus didn't arrive, thanks be to God. You know there's a difference between thanksgiving and gratitude. Gratitude is what you feel, thanksgiving is what you do. And when you are a Christian, you are constantly fighting the battle to reorient the inner desires and feelings of your heart according to the character of God and his word. Constantly. It is a constant work. You never get over it. You will practice that discipline over and over and over again the longer you are alive. You are continuing to, to connect your heart into God's word and into God's character that you might respond appropriately. You with me? Am I right? Am I right, Janie? Is that right? That's right. She said it. It's right. But thanks be to God. Now, why thanks? Because of what he says next. Thanks be to God who in Christ, he's going to mention Christ five times, I think, in this passage of five verses, which gives you an eye of where Paul's spiritual focus is. He's not looking at Titus. He's not looking at the severe letter. He's not looking at the weather patterns. He's not looking at travel plans. He's not looking so much ultimately at what's happening in the Corinthian church, but he puts his eyes and directs his heart on God. Thanks be to God who in Christ, how often does he lead us? Always. You are telling me that God can lead when your emotional life is a wreck. Is that what you're telling me, Paul? Paul, you're telling me that when life doesn't make sense, it's not that God isn't off his throne? You're telling me that God is still in charge even when I am praying to him and the answers aren't coming through. 
you're telling me that God's still in charge when I'm praying and concerned about people's salvation and walking away from the gospel message that God is still leading. Thanks be to God who in Christ, now do you see what a discipline that is for a heart that is crazy? In Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is a rare word. It's only used, I think, two times in the Bible. It's used consistently in the extra biblical literature to refer to uh, things that the Romans used to do. If you remember, Corinth is a Roman colony. And in this Roman colony, they may have seen this before, but a Roman triumph, you can look at this, go look at Wikipedia uh, and read about the Roman triumph. A lot of the information we have about this is from a Jewish historian named Josephus who talks about a Roman triumph over Jerusalem. There's an arch that the Romans would use uh, to celebrate the victories of uh, Roman generals. And it's called the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is in Rome, and it commemorates the sacking and destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. Paul writes before this time, about 14 years prior, when he writes 2 Corinthians. But let me tell you just what a Roman triumph is like. So just to put this in your mind. You can think military parade, and that is about 10% of what it is. This is what a historian wrote. The highest honor which could be given to a victorious Roman general was a triumph. Before he could win it, he must satisfy certain conditions. He must have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field. The campaign must have been completely finished, the region pacified, and the victorious troops brought home. At least 5,000 of the enemy must have fallen in one engagement. An extension of territory must have been gained and not merely a disaster retrieved or attack repelled. The victory must have been won over a foreign foe and not in a civil war. In an actual triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in the following order. First there were the state officials, and then the senate, then the trumpeters, then they carried a seven-branched candlestick, the golden table of showbread, and the golden trumpets were carried through the streets of Rome, which were the victorious spoils stolen from the temple of God. Then there came pictures of the conquered land and the models of conquered citadels and ships. There followed the white bull for sacrifice which would be made. Then there walked captives, the enemy princes and leaders and generals and chains shortly to be flung into prison and all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then there came the minor judicial officials bearing their rods followed by musicians with their lyres. Then there came priests swinging censers with sweet-smelling incense. Then there came the general. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses clad in a purple tunic and embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand he held out an ivory scepter with the Roman eagle on top of it and over his head a slave held the crown of Jupiter. Then his family and finally there came the army wearing all their decorations and shouting their cries of triumph. As the procession moved through the streets, all decorated and garlanded amid the shouting, cheering crowds, it was a tremendous day, a day in which might only happen once in a lifetime. This is the picture. Now, Paul's a Roman citizen. He may have seen these before. And Paul takes what's something that would be um, awe-inspiring for the Romans who lived in Corinth during that time and say that Jesus is just like that. Now, how does Paul look? Anguished, fearful, tearful, oppressed, afflicted, on the run. 
And Paul says, no matter what I'm feeling at the time, the parade of the victorious Lord of hosts is proceeding forward always. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I'm seeing. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. This procession of Christ's profound victory is going forward. How is the question. How does it go forward? Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Look at the remainder of the verse. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Amanda is one of the women on our team and she has an office in the middle of all of the offices in the offices. <laughs> Complex. And Amanda from time to time will light a candle and you will hit, you will smell that candle. It's, I don't know, it's like papaya, hibiscus, rainbow, unicorn, something. It's profound. It's an amazing smell. You walk in, and the scent overpowers the office area. And Paul takes his anguish and his anxiety and concern for the spiritual lives of others and what is happening in his gospel opportunities, and he says, God's always in charge. God's always leading us in Christ, and through us, through what I am doing in my missionary endeavors as a Christian who believes in Jesus and has received a commission from him, as I go forward, God is always leading. And what he's doing is leading us and through us spreading the fragrance of the what? Now, underline that word. Because if you imagine a candle that gives off no scent until the wick is lit then you have a picture of what Paul's gospel ministry is like. See, candles, they give off a, a, a certain scent, right? When you open, you gotta smell it so it doesn't smell like pork or something and you put it back. Those are all the ones that are like $3, right? But it's as if you take the candle of, God, of Paul's gospel ministry and his preaching of the gospel and you open it up and you can't smell it. You don't know what it smells like until the match is lit of the knowledge of him. See, Christians, we can do a lot of good things. We can have a lot of good opportunities. But let me tell you something, that the fragrance of the gospel that saves sinners doesn't show up until you light it with the knowledge of him. Until you get to Jesus, and we start having conversations about the, the one who can save anyone, then you can't smell it. Paul may give you a picture of victory. He may give you a picture of a military parade with the general in charge, but you can't smell it or apprehend it until we start talking about the knowledge of him. Through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him where? Everywhere. Christians, where are you called to be a witness, a light, and salt? Everywhere. Everywhere. Thank you. Where are you meant to hold on to gospel opportunities, not to just do good deeds or be a generally kind person, but to point people to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Where? Everywhere. So watch. Paul's confidence that soothes the anxiety in his heart is rooted in the fact of his gospel ministry. 
Remember Paul in, in 2 Timothy, he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, blah, 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 uh, for which I am suffering as like a criminal in chains. At the end of his life, he's getting ready to die. And then he says something so profound, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, but the word of God is not bound. Paul recognized it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, whether from false pretenses or pure, I rejoice because Christ is preached. It doesn't matter who's preaching it as long as the message is preached. So Paul is gloriously disconnected from the consequences of faithful ministry. He recognizes God's always going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't really matter what I'm feeling at this moment. I'm going to give thanks to God and remember that always, in all times, in every place, in every situation, when I lift up the person and work of Jesus Christ, God is in charge doing stuff. 4, verse 15. We are the aroma. Now, the aroma word is not the fragrance word. He'll use fragrance in a minute. Fragrance is just the word odor. It's a smell. This word is not that word. This word is a word that's used over in the book of Ephesians to talk about something specific about who Christ is and what he has done. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to whom? To God. Remember how Paul said last week that the Corinthian church had to do their discipline in the presence or in the face of Christ. And we said that a church is going to be faithful only if they care what Jesus says about their church. So Paul says, as I go about my ministry, as I take the opportunities to preach the gospel, we are the aroma of Christ to God. So that when God smells our ministry, he goes, oh, that's good. Ever walk by a Cinnabon? That's how I imagine. That's how I imagine it. God's up there going, that's good. I need one of those. I don't care if it's 1,500 calories. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Second Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> 5 verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Was God pleased? I had a seminary professor, it was Howard Hendricks, who at the, uh, when I had him, he said, one of the reasons that the ascension for the Christian is so important, where Christ rises into heaven, is to show that the sacrifice has been accepted. Because when you look into the Old Testament, the sacrificial idea of the burnt offering, the burnt offering is called a pleasing aroma. When Noah gets off the boat and takes clean animals and offers them before God, it says that God smelled the pleasing aroma. It's a sacrifice that God says, that's a good sacrifice. Now, how is that connected to Paul? Paul has given his life to gospel ministry. He's given his life to the purposes of Jesus. And now, as he goes around experiencing the consequences for faithfulness to Jesus Christ because of what he preaches, he says that when I do that, God here smells the aroma of the sacrifice that was pleasing to him. And when we preach that message of Jesus Christ, God says yes and amen to that message. He agrees and enjoys and loves the preaching of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. 
Do you know that? He loves it. You as Christians love it when we get to Christ, don't you? You go, how can that be, this wonderful person who has taken the wrath of God for me and washed me clean and presents me pure and spotless before his presence with great joy? Let's talk more about him. And Paul says, in my ministry, we are an aroma of Christ to God. Come back to 2 Corinthians if you're not. 2 Corinthians. Now look at verse 15 again. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now that's interesting. Verse 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So now we have God's perspective on Paul's message, right? God's perspective is that Paul's preaching ministry is pleasing to him because he preaches Christ. But now we have the response of people. You ever smell a candle you don't like? They're awful, aren't they? You ever smell a candle you do like? And you go, I want to light that in multiple places in my homes. But the difference of the liking is individual, right? You have different scents that you like. I have different scents that I like. There are different things that are pleasing to me and others that are displeasing to me. But for Paul, there's two groups of people. There's not three. There's not as many opinions as there are in this room. Paul says that when I preach a message that is pleasing to God, that message has a dynamic power to separate people into two groups. And because of their opinion of the preached word of God about God made flesh, that opinion, that decision creates division. There's two groups of people, there's two different responses, but there's only one message. Which means Paul recognizes his preaching ministry comes with profound consequences, doesn't it? When we talk about Jesus Christ, you may, there are people, no matter who you are, who will ultimately be destined for eternity of death or an eternity of life. There is no third option, like Oklahoma. It's right about in the middle. When Christ is preached, you either love him or ultimately you hate him. You either want him to rule and reign in every single aspect of your life or you hate that he makes that claim over your life. There is no third option. He ends with a question. Which I think shows again Paul's humanity. It shows again his humility. It shows the seriousness of the task to which Paul has been given. Who is sufficient for these things? It is a terrifying reality to say that here we stand as a church in 2022 and we will have conversations about an individual who was incarnated, lived a perfect life, was crucified, dead three days, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And your opinion about that man that we preach will determine your eternal destiny forever. 
And Paul, for a moment, recognizes the humbling reality of ministry. He recognized that this is no human thing. You don't get into ministry because you're smart. You don't get into ministry because you're qualified. No ministry has any impact or power because of any human credentials whatsoever. I don't care how many letters are after your name. Any ministry that has God's divine stamp of approval should cause the one who engages in that ministry to ask this question. Who in the world is sufficient for this? Who has the credentials to preach something that divides humanity into the damned and the saved? There ought to be in the hearts of any preacher, of anyone who shares the gospel, a profound, sobering humility about what is happening. When we lift up Jesus Christ, listen, I will be dead in probably 50 years, give or take. Jesus will still be alive, and the preaching of Christ will still happen if the Lord waits and doesn't come back earlier. And every single day, the reality is we are either being saved and the gospel message is restoring and renewing us, or we are moving toward eternal death. Now look at how Paul pivots. Who's sufficient? This is the question that'll take you into chapter three. I'm not gonna give you that right now. I just wanna finish here with these last two little bitty verses. Who is, I'm sorry, one verse. For who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers. Well, some commentators, some Bibles have hucksters, which is an even more obscure word. If you don't know what a peddler is, I don't think you know what a huckster is. Essentially, the idea is somebody who's in it for the sales, who's in it for the likes, who's in it for the follows, who's in it for the money, who will do whatever it takes to make sure that the message is received appropriately. They've got all the right marketing tactics. They try to adjust and manipulate the message in such a way that it will get as big a following as possible. We can't say that, that's too harsh. We can't talk about sin that much. Let's just encourage them every week. Let's just make sure they're happy. Let's give away an iPad. Let's do something to excite the people who want to sing about making their emotional lives feel good. And what Paul shows you in 2 Corinthians 2 here is that his emotional life is a wreck unless he's got theology. Unless he's got a foundation to build his life that comes from the confidence that Jesus Christ is in charge, the confidence that Jesus Christ is leading, no matter what Paul is feeling, the confidence that when he preaches, division is happening. The dynamic Christian message goes forward and he recognizes I am insufficient for that task because I'm not in it for the likes or the follows or the money or the profit. We aren't like those individuals who peddle the word of God. But, what are we like? Three things, as men of sincerity. Remember that word? Made up of two Greek words, son and tested. And Paul's life, his conscience, his inner motivations is held up to the light and it's clean and it's clear. He says, all I've got is my earnest heart that I would be obedient to God and preach the message clearly. 
That's all I got. My conscience is clean. I am a sincere individual making sincere pleas to people. Men of sincerity. As commissioned by God. Commissioned is actually an interpretation. You may not have commissioned in your Bible. Literally, the Greek reads, as from God. The apostolic cohort that Paul has talked about up to this point. He's talked about being anointed back in chapter 1. Remember that? Paul says this in the book of Galatians. uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul recognized, I didn't dream up this gospel message on my own. I was sent from God. I was an apostello, sent one. So I am totally sincere. I'm totally clean in my motivations. My conscience before you is clean. Number two, I've been sent by God. And number three, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I want God's approval. When he smells my ministry, I want God to say, that's good. And this is a profoundly personal verse for any Christian, any missionary, any pastor, any leader. Paul recognizes and roots his ministry in the sight of God. James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And Paul says, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm not trying to preach for popularity. In fact, I'm wearing the emotional cost and weight of people's eternities in my mind and in my heart. And in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That Christ controls my leadership of my life. He controls my emotional well-being because he's given me a root to give thanks for, a foundation to set my life. And number three, he's given me a ministry that is in the eyes of God himself. So it doesn't matter how many uh, likes Paul gets, right? It doesn't matter how many clicks, how many follows. It doesn't matter to Paul. Paul recognizes he's dealing with deeper realities. He is dealing with the eternity and people's souls. So the foundation and the authority of Paul's ministry is rooted upon God's activity, upon the commissioning and the fact that Paul has been sent And number three, the ongoing reality that God evaluates his ministry mission. Just like the Corinthian church had to do what they do to discipline the individual in their body in the presence of Christ, Paul too, as the missionary and apostolic leader, has to be at the front and saying, what I do is in the sight of God. Every single decision I make is under his watchful eye and concern. So when God is looking at me, I preach Christ because it's in Christ alone that I know God is pleased. See, that's the root and the foundation of a ministry that God looks at and goes, that is pleasing. Doesn't matter what people think. Doesn't matter how popular he is. Doesn't matter if he's a solo apostle waiting on a dock for his buddy Titus. He says, thanks be to God because he's given me the true gospel ministry. Amen? Father in heaven, these are sobering things. As we look at Paul's life here, we recognize that the gospel ministry where we proclaim that all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us 
have lives and thoughts and words and deeds that do not measure up to the purity and the righteous standards that you demand. And Father, when we talk about Jesus Christ who divides humanity into those who are being saved and those who are perishing, we ask with Paul who is sufficient for this task. So Father, if there's anybody in the room here today who has not considered the fact that Jesus can take all of their sins away, that in Christ is total forgiveness, is total satisfaction of the penalty for sin that is death, that we can receive full and clean and clear righteousness because of what he has done for us. I pray, Father, for that man or woman. I pray that through your spirit that you would touch them and give life to their eyes, that they would say thanks be to God for who Jesus is and what he has done for me. So, Father, we bless you. We are sobered and in awe of the gospel ministry. May we, as a church, discharge it faithfully. May we be men and women of courage in our day and age, not to look for what is popular, but to look to be men and women who are an aroma that is pleasing to God in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.